0: Welcome to the 39th Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg and my co-host is still the Mermaid of the Mountains, Vicki Nichols Goldstein.
1: Woohoo! Hello, Mark and David.
0: Today, we're talking with longtime award-winning Louisiana environmental reporter Mark Schlefstein. Reporting for the Times' Picayune, New Orleans Advocate, and others, Mark's something of an endangered species himself, a newspaper reporter who's still working. Mark's <laughs> coverage of the coast and ocean includes a 1997 Pulitzer Prize, First coverage of the Gulf of Mexico and its fisheries, and a 2006 Pulitzer Prize for coverage of Hurricane Katrina. So, Mark, we're talking even as another major hurricane is headed your way. With two having struck Lake Charles last year, Louisiana seems to be a magnet for storms. Tell us where you were when the historic Hurricane Katrina came ashore.
2: I actually was at our old newspaper building, which doesn't exist anymore, and I uh... Um, actually, you know, my my fun story was that at, at four o'clock on Saturday, two days before it made landfall, um, I was sitting there having an argument with editors about whether or not to run a uh, uh, a photo of uh, a uh, model that showed uh, half the city would flood very similar to what Hurricane Betsy did in 1965. And they were saying, you know, well, why, why should we be, uh, you know, uh, scaring the hell out of our readers. Um, and the phone rang and I picked it up and it was Max Mayfield, the, the then head of the national hurricane center. And before I had a chance to say anything, he said, Mark, how high is your building? What kinds of winds can it withstand? And I I'm told by the publisher who was standing behind me that I turned white and, uh, uh, I explained to Max that, uh, yeah, we were high enough for a three-story building at the time. And it, it was a, a, basically a cinder block. It wasn't going to blow away, which was true. Um, it did get surrounded by water, though, uh, in the aftermath of the storm. Me and my family, um, at, after Katrina, uh, you play a game. So how much water did you get? And my wife always goes, ah, we had two feet of water on the second floor, which is true. We had 15 feet of water in our house in Lakeview, which was uh, one of the most uh, expensive areas of the city near the lakefront.
0: So you, uh, obviously, you got the warning out after you got that call, the the times pick you and got the warning out. You'd been actually uh, writing about the possibility of a major storm like that for years. I, I think you're you said your editor even called it your disaster porn.
2: That's, that's true. When we, uh, we, we did a, a series in 2002 called Washing Away that explained how risk had increased uh, for the city, especially because of the levy system that was then too low. And uh, in, in my presentation to editors to try to get them to start the, the project, uh, one of the editors, the city editor, stood up and said, well, you know, this is just more Schlesien's disaster porn. And my response, um, Prescient, was, well, you know, there's 100,000 uh, families in New Orleans who don't have cars, and there's no plan to get them out of the city. Um, and uh, they said, okay, that's you, you, you make your point. Well, we'll we'll let you do it, but first we want you to explain how everybody rips off FEMA after storms by uh, stealing all the money and uh, after we explained that that wasn't true um, uh, it took us a, a month or two we were working on the other part of it as well we also explained that yes the levees were too low and uh, that uh, the big one was eventually going to come and it was going to um, uh, lead to a major disaster. Uh, ironically the levy uh, series that we did explain that the levees were too low. What they didn't explain, because we took the core and its word like everybody else did, was that large quantities of the levee system were improperly built, and that was the reason for the failures in New Orleans in, in uh, large part. Um, uh, both flood walls uh, were uh, improperly built and fell over or were moved out of the way, and uh, earthen levees Uh, were overtopped and uh, uh, the clay cap on top of them was eroded away and the interior was made out of improper materials, uh, either sand or organic materials and just washed away. So where you had um, 15 and a half foot levees that should have been 17 and a half foot based on um, the the plans for those levees, they went to zero like within a couple of hours. Um, in terms of height, and stayed that way for you know uh, several days after Katrina, uh, the water just kept pouring in.
0: And and so when the levees breached, uh, you were still reporting this from the Times Picayune building, but that didn't work out.
2: Right, we had to evacuate the next day because the water had basically attacked us. Um, uh, it never got into the building, but it got pretty much up up the steps, almost to to the the first floor level which is probably five feet above sea level where we were
0: so how'd you get out
2: uh we got out in the back of uh of delivery trucks um and some of us went to the west bank others went uh farther inland um and uh, i ended up at um uh, the home of courier uh that night where we put out the newspaper. Uh, through their help online for the next three days. Um, the next day I went to, to Baton Rouge and we set up a shop at uh, uh, the Manship School of Journalism uh, on the Louisiana State University campus. And uh, uh, we worked out of there for about two weeks while we were setting up a, a temporary office elsewhere in Baton Rouge that we stayed in until October
0: you and thousands of other families lost your homes to the waters. Um, Do you almost feel this, this last, this last fire season, I had two friends who lost their homes to wildfire here in California. You almost feel like you were one of the early people to be displaced by climate change.
2: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting at the, at the time of Katrina, um, it, it really wasn't clear that there were climate effects for Katrina. Uh, it was really only afterwards. Um, uh, in fact, when when I did when we did our book, I went down to uh, uh, the, the Hurricane Research Division and listened to a uh, basically a debate between Chris Lancey, who is now the Science Officer for the National Hurricane Center, and um, Dredd. I can't remember his name at uh, uh, MIT, um, who who were talking about, you know, gee, there really are uh, climate effects to these storms. And they finally came to a conclusion after that debate um, the next year where they put out a joint article that pretty much is held um, till today, which is that um, hurricanes are getting more intense. Uh, Hurricanes are becoming wetter. And, uh, but the number of hurricanes in any uh, basin really haven't changed much. And it's unclear whether or not there's a significant effect on the number of hurricanes that are occurring. That may change after we've seen what's happened in the last couple of years. Uh, but there's still an indication that this is what we're seeing with the more uh, um, frequent hurricanes as a result of, uh, of a different long-term 40-year pattern of storms in the Atlantic uh, than from climate change. But more importantly for for New Orleans, um, what, what we have learned is that uh, sea level rise caused by climate change has become a, a much greater factor in the height of uh, hurricane storm surges. So while during Katrina, It wasn't much of an effect. It wasn't, you know, maybe a couple of inches higher, which wasn't really much in terms of the total amount. Um, As we move forward, that's really going to be a problem uh, by the end of this century uh, in terms of uh, what sea level rise is gonna be. You can add another four to five feet on the Gulf Coast uh, for what might be added to sea level rise. And that's your starting point for water on, on, on the edges of these levees that are protecting the city. So you're basically reducing the height of these levees by four or five feet by the sea level rise.
1: Mark, what is um what is your confidence level with the current levee system and the heights now? So you just <laughs> explained the impact with climate change and yeah.
2: what Katrina looked like.
1: Tell us um tell us your thoughts on that one.
2: I believe the same as the Army Corps of Engineers does. <laughs> And this takes a little bit to explain. The court looks at the levees as a risk reduction system. It's not a hurricane protection system. It reduces the chances of the structures inside the levees of being flooded, okay? And that is true. But it's built to a standard, um, the so-called 100-year standard or 1% standard set by the National Flood Insurance Program. And that standard is inadequate for the city of New Orleans because, you know, you look at Katrina, um, it was a 400-year storm for the way it hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast. It was a 250-year storm the way that storm surge hit the the eastern side of the New Orleans area levee system in St. Bernard Parish. And it was a 150-year system in uh, Lake Pontchartrain where the least amount of storm surge occurred, but you had lots of failures of flood walls that were improperly built.
0: You mentioned your, your book you co-authored. What's the name of your book? We always like to promote our...
2: <laughs> it's called Path of Destruction, the Devastation in New Orleans and the Coming Age of Superstorms.
0: So as superstorms do start to come ashore along with the uh, intensified wildfires, droughts and flooding, one solution we're looking at is increased funding for living shorelines to rebuild our coastline's natural protections. And at the federal level, we're talking about $10 billion for coastal restoration. But that's small change in Louisiana. Tell, tell us what's the status of, of uh, attempts to rebuild the uh, declining coast of, of Louisiana.
2: So the the state of Louisiana has what it calls a coastal master plan that is 50% coastal restoration and 50% levees, And they sort of pull this number out of the air. It's a $50 billion 50 year uh, plan. But the reality is that half of that money goes to restoration and about two thirds of the restoration half goes to projects where you're, uh, mining sediment in the Mississippi River, pumping it by uh, pipeline inland to fill in open water and build new wetlands, and then another smaller portion is uh, is supposed to be used for what are called uh, sediment diversions, where you're basically cutting a hole in the Mississippi River, putting a structure there, and um, allowing water during high river periods to move from the river back into the wetland areas the way it used to do before all of the river levees were built beginning in the 1880s um, and uh, were really significantly built after the 27th flood and the idea behind that is that it's a cheaper way of doing things than pumping stuff especially as the price of oil Uh, increases and it costs more to pump that material from the river inland. Um, uh, A lot easier to just open a gate and let the water flow in on its own. But there are problems with it that are being fought uh, tooth and nail by uh, commercial fishermen and recreational fishermen. And that is that it is going to significantly change the uh, present status of fisheries. Um, in those areas on the east and west side of the Mississippi River. Uh, it will make those areas much fresher um, and that will change the kinds of fish that can stay there. It will uh, disrupt existing commercial fisheries including oysters, um, uh, shrimp, and uh, and thin fish, uh, largely anandromous species. Um, uh, and uh, will reduce uh, the present number of fisher, you know, the present fisher groups catches uh, of those kinds of fish and replace them if they're able to do it with freshwater fish like trout and and bass, which they're not really interested in because they don't have a market for it. So that's that's part of the problem. The other, the megafauna problem is uh, bottlenose dolphins. Um, the 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 state. And the Corps recognized that if if the diversions operate as planned, uh, it's basically gonna gonna dramatically reduce the number of bottlenose dolphins on the east side of the river and possibly on the west side of the river who have only lived in those areas for the last 100 years because they've become open water by the loss of wetlands, but it's a significant population. So those are, are problems that are being dealt with right now in, in an environmental impact statement process uh, that the state's going through with the Corps of Engineers.
0: So let me ask you, so there'll be greater salinity and maybe a, a bunch of displaced dolphins. Will it bring the land back?
2: There'll be less salinity. And, and what will happen is that the sediment, um, the, the plan is to provide enough sediment to keep existing wetlands or a, a, a greater portion of existing wetlands above water than would be in 100 years if the projects were not there. There will still be less wetlands throughout South Louisiana, significantly less wetlands, about 2,000 square miles uh, in 100 years than there are today, but this would at least save some of them for fisheries and other reasons and also is aimed at protecting them in in front of those leady systems that are protecting populated areas.
0: <laughs> the idea that our offshore energy production might shift from uh, oil in the Gulf of Mexico to uh, wind on the eastern seaboard. What is the transition off of, of fossil fuels look like in the Gulf of Mexico, which has some 4,000 plus yeah. oil rigs?
2: So, as I'm sure you're aware, our, um, our politicians are not interested in reducing. Uh, development of oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico for a variety of different reasons. Uh, however, uh, our governor, uh, who happens to be a Democrat in a Republican state, um, <clears throat> is, um, is addressing climate change and, and as part of it, that offshore uh, development process in um, a, a rather significant way. Uh, he has a task force that has just published uh, a list of 100 bullets of different ways to reduce uh, climate emissions in the state completely across the board. And they're finally way too late is an, uh, an interest in developing offshore wind um, through um, uh, uh, coalition that's going to include coastal states and, uh, uh, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. So we'll, we'll see what happens. It's, it's way too late and it's going to take a long time to really get off the ground. But what's happening on, on the East Coast is, is certainly going to help move things along. I mean, a good sign
0: in terms of jobs is that it seems pretty easy to transition roughnecks and roustabouts into uh, uh, turbine technicians and linesmen on offshore
2: we're already seeing that uh, the Schwest company, C-H-O-U-E-S-T, which is the largest offshore service uh, boat provider has uh, several contracts to build uh, offshore windmill uh, supply boats uh, for uh, for Texas, unfortunately, but I'm sure they'll move over here. And uh, so that's, that's a positive sign.
1: Mark, I want to um, transition a little bit up the river, so to speak. So I live in Colorado and watershed health is uh, a very important part of I think our nation's concern. And the largest watershed is in the center of the country where we have a lot of farming and all of that water drains down into the Mississippi and out into the Gulf of Mexico, as I'm sure you well know. Um, And we've seen different uh, sizes of the dead zones. Some years they're larger due to freshwater influx, or excuse me, sometimes they're smaller and the opposite. So um, with your experience living in that area, can you tell us a little bit more about dead zones and how that impacts the ecology of the area, the fisheries, the marine mammals, the whole shebang?
2: Basically, the problem that we have is that nutrients that are carried by the river from the Midwest, from farms, uh, a a smaller portion from sewage treatment plants and other uses, and a little bit of natural causes, uh, all comes downriver, goes through New Orleans on its way to the Gulf of Mexico, or through the, um, um, you know, 30% of it goes through the Atchafalaya River, Uh, and all ends up on the Gulf Coast, uh, in that uh, results in huge blooms of algae spring and summer. The algae uh, grows, it dies, it sinks to the bottom, it decomposes and uses up all the oxygen. Uh, so you yeah, have between zero and two parts per uh, thousand um, parts per million uh, in the water, which is not enough to, to um, um, allow organisms, benthose organisms that live in the bottom mud. Uh, to survive and fish, uh, they either have to get out, or they also die. Uh, fish and uh, and shrimp, and so it it for you know at the moment for fishers, um, it basically is making them move farther away to get their catch during parts of the year. Um, uh, but it you know longer term, it's it's having a long term effect on on their uh, food tor- sources along the Gulf Coast. Um, the problem is that uh, there's been uh, these goals that have been set uh, under the Clean Water Act for reducing uh, the nutrients in the river uh, that were set you know, back in the 1990s um, and they've never been met. And there's no indication that they're ever going to be met. There have been some dramatic improvements upriver. In terms of efforts by uh, farmers to reduce emissions coming off their land, but it really hasn't meant much uh, on the Gulf Coast in terms of all the nutrients that do come come down. The problem is that you know what needs to be put in place are standards uh, along the river that are enforceable uh, by uh, enforcement agencies, rather than this present you know, theory that doesn't work, that we can do all of this through voluntary methods and just pour money at all these voluntary efforts to do it. It's it's just not working. Here we are, you know, we're, we're, you know, one year after Hurricane Laura and uh, 16 years after Hurricane Katrina, facing a a very similar kind of a storm coming in that's going to create a significant amount of difference. And it's going to be very hard to deal with as we move forward. This is a key tension that has grown dramatic in the you know since Katrina really. Louisiana talks about a working coast and it's a reality. There's a hell of a lot of stuff that goes on outside the levee systems in Louisiana. If you try to put everything behind a levee system, you're you're then affecting the area south of the levee systems in terms of the coast, in terms of uh, natural resources. So you got to limit how much levees you're actually uh, going to build. But at the same time, you want to provide communities an opportunity to, to survive in some way um, to provide the same resources. You know, I, I joke that um, in the New Orleans area, um, if you look back in 1718, when Bienville and Iberville created the city, Um, They created it in its present location because it was the closest place uh, upriver on the Mississippi River to its mouth that was protected from the British, okay, because it was above English Turn, And today, it's the same thing. It's the closest place to the mouth of the river that's protected from storm surge but the reasons it's there are the same. And that is because it's the shipping outlet for all of uh, North America. And you've got to have that uh, someplace, you know, some people could say, well, you can just move it to Baton Rouge, but that's a a significant loss. You're, You're talking about losing, you know, $300 billion worth of investment in the city of New Orleans. Who pays for that? Who pays to move all those people? Who wants all those people living in their communities? So you've got to deal with that. And the same thing occurs all along the coast in these smaller communities that are either inside or outside of levy systems um, where they're, they're facing the same thing. And so the flood insurance program has been attempting to deal with that. There was an attempt to deal with it, I don't know, five or six years ago that went way overboard and said, well, you just can't do it. and We're not going to allow you to do it and Louisiana and some other coastal communities got together and stopped that and basically got us to where we are now, which is, you know, one year or six month uh, approvals of extending the flood insurance program while they try to figure out some longer term process, Uh, all of which was occurring in the last four years uh, during an administration that didn't want to recognize what was happening with sea level rise. So you've got a new administration that does want to do that, but also wants, I think I've seen this, wants to deal with some of those real issues that these communities uh, deal with.
0: What do you see as the future of southern Louisiana? I mean, you've been covering this this challenge for a generation now.
2: You know, the reality is that it's it's going to be very difficult to move forward. Um, The 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 core and the state are right now discussing how to keep the existing New Orleans area levy elevated over the next 50 years. The Corps is given a, a cheap version of that, keep it at the 100 year level. And the state wants it to go to at least 200 years level, um, which is still not the 500 year level that it probably should be at. Um, and and those, those are the kinds of issues that are being addressed all across the coast.
0: And a lot of the focus is also on eco equity.
2: That's a whole, you know, a whole layer that goes on top of all of this, which is that those people who are are most at risk are least able to have the uh, economic and political wherewithal to get their needs dealt with. That happens in the city of New Orleans proper with funding for things. Uh, even though it's uh, uh, an African-American majority city run by African-Americans, but it's much more so in other locations along the coast, up the Mississippi River towards Baton Rouge and uh, climate change uh, affected um, areas where uh, um, uh, you've got, you know, major petrochemical industry facilities operating with very little oversight, uh, from the federal government, going on, it's it's a real problem.
1: I want to thank you for staying on top of this, and for reporting for decades on these important issues dealing with humans, the environment, the ocean, climate,
2: the whole shebang. Make a plug here, and that is, you know, um, my position and uh, two other positions that are covering environmental issues at. Uh, the Times Picayune, NOLA.com, uh, the New Orleans Advocate are, are grant funded at the moment. And our newspaper has a, a funding process. If people go to NOLA.com, they can make contributions with that money going to our reporting. dot exactly.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, Mark, for joining us on Rising Tide Ocean Podcasts. Always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Mark. Have a great one and good luck on your next uh, reporting that's coming up early in the morning.
0: Okay, thank you. And now a word from our sponsor.
1: That's the sound of a North American right whale. With fewer than 400 left along the Atlantic coast, the right whale will soon be extinct if we don't act now. 80% of their deaths are caused by entanglement with fishing gear, including ropes from lobster and crab pots. That's why we need to begin deploying ropeless fishing gear technology that is both practical and affordable. With your support, we can protect the livelihoods of fishers and the lives of endangered right whales. The Sierra Club Marine Team, because 71% of the environment is salty. To learn more, go to Sierra Club Marine Team on Facebook.
2: Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helvarg and Vicki Nichols-Goldstein and with the support of Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and
1: additional technical support are provided by studio Cape May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenvarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download at any time from Apple, Google or Spotify.
2: Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to
1: fear It's true, it's the Blue Frontier Off in the salty ocean, off to the Blue Frontier
2: Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are, good boy, Sparky.